Welcome to From What If to What Next. Yes, we're here again. I know how much you look forward to these episodes. We do too. Thanks for all your kind comments on what these conversations mean to you. We really appreciate them. And in a world that seems to just accept the decline in our collective imagination with a shrug of the shoulders, this is a place that says, no, this really matters, and puts the imagination back in the centre of our conversations, our decisions, our lives. And it's important to note that we're only able to do this because of those kind and noble souls who subscribe to this podcast and make it possible. Thank you. We salute you. And if you enjoy today's adventure, perhaps you might consider joining those exalted ranks of those who choose to support us in doing this. Pop to patreon.com slash from what if to what next and subscribe. Thank you. Flying. It's amazing. You get on, eat your supper, have a snooze, wake up, and you're in India. What's not to love about that, right? Well, our love affair with flying, sadly, needs reimagining. If aviation was a nation, it would be in the top 10 global emitting countries. The time we spend on aeroplanes produces more emissions than any other activity we could do for those hours other than perhaps starting forest fires. Not a hobby we wish to encourage on this podcast either. Globally, just 1% of the population were responsible for over half of all the world's aviation-related carbon emissions. The vast majority of people in the world will never and have never set foot on an aeroplane. The last couple of years have not been kind to the aviation sector. Covid has grounded most of the world's planes. Many airlines stand on the verge of bankruptcy. People discovered that universities could still function without flying academics around the world presenting papers at different conferences and flying in students from everywhere. Businesses discovered that you could still run a viable business without having to fly your team to Paris for a breakfast meeting. At the same time, governments are getting more serious about flying, taking steps to restrict it. Last week, the French government announced they were banning all domestic flights on routes that could also be travelled by train in under two and a half hours. I stopped flying in 2006. I travelled to the far reaches of Europe on the train, reaching Sweden, Denmark, Austria, Italy, Mallorca. I long one day to take the Trans-Siberian Express. Yes, there are now places in the world I probably will never reach, but that's okay. I can honestly say that not flying has not diminished my quality of life at all. I travel slower. I see more. As we reach a time where airlines and travel companies are now falling over themselves to tempt us back onto aeroplanes to head off on holiday, hear it from what if to what next, we're taking a pause, a breath, to ask a question that once felt heretical, but which now feels rather exciting. What if we all stopped flying? My two guests today have possibly the lowest number of air miles between them of any two guests on this podcast so far. Anna Hughes is an author and flight-free adventurer, hasn't been on a plane for more than a decade. She's the director of Flight Free UK, a campaign that asks people to give up flying for a year in order to break the habit and try different ways of travelling. With a background in sustainable transport campaigning and behaviour change, she's passionate about how our individual choices can change the world. And Ed Gillespie describes himself as a recovering sustainability consultant. He's a director of Greenpeace UK, a facilitator at the Forward Institute on Responsible Leadership, and is an investor mentor of numerous ethical environmental startups. You may also be enjoying him on the John Richardson and the Future Noughts podcasts, or have even seen him compare the wonderful Imaginarium tent at the equally wonderful but sadly postponed for this year Shambhala Festival. Welcome both to From What If To What Next. 
Hi. Thanks for having us, Rob. Yeah, thanks, Rob. So I'd like to start by inviting you both to do the exercise that we always start this podcast with, which is that I'd like to invite you both to get comfortable and to close your eyes and to imagine that thanks to our special From What If To What Next time machine, you're travelling forwards through time, 2023, 2024, through a time that we look back subsequently as being a revolution of the imagination, so much unfolded that seemed unimaginable in 2021, and the 2030 that you arrive into, step blinking into, is one where flying has pretty much disappeared from our world. The last nine years were a time in which flying became socially unacceptable, airlines went out of business, and the way in which we live and work changed. People now travel less, and when they do, they travel more slowly and mindfully. The work you both did to try and move the world beyond its flying fixation back in the early 2020s actually worked. Well done. I wonder what your impressions are of that world. How does it differ from 2021? What can you see, hear, smell, feel? Can you describe that flight-free world to us? Ed? Well, I think the first thing, Rob, is the sky. The blue sky. The contrail-free sky. I think it feels like a couple of moments that we had in the past. If you go back to 2010, you know, we remember the ash cloud of 20 years ago where all of Europe's aviation was grounded. And I remember standing on the balcony of my Brixton flat and looking at the blue sky and taking a photograph of it and thinking, I wonder when this will happen again. And obviously it happened again during the pandemic of uh, 2020, 21. But here in 2030, it's just quite extraordinary that we take that blue sky for granted in the way that it used to be crisscrossed. Uh, and full of rumbling jets. And if you lived in South London, like I do, you're very familiar with that Heathrow and Gatwick approaches that used to, to kind of disrupt our days. So I think for me, the first thing is that is that blue sky, that clear blue sky. Great. Thank you. Anna? It's definitely all about the blue sky, isn't it? And the fact that we can hear the birdsong rather than the rumble of planes especially for those who live under flight paths. And for me, I live in East London. And so therefore I'm on a bit of a crisscross of flight paths from city airport, sometimes even Heathrow, I see them going over and to Stansted Airport, of course, uh, which follow the River Lee where I live. And it used to be that it would be early in the morning, I'd get woken up from the noise. But that hasn't happened for so long now. And yeah, Ed, I'm also remembering back to 2020 when the pandemic meant that most of the planes disappeared from our skies. And that sense of peace and that real calm that kind of came about because of that. I'm so glad that we've now got that back in our 2030 um, world that we have succeeded in making this a choice because that's the other thing. That's the main thing that's different here, isn't it? When we have been forced to stay grounded before, either because of volcanic eruptions or because of global pandemic, it has been the choice been taken away from us, which isn't a positive thing. But when we choose this as, a, as an action because we know that the flights that we take have been so damaging, we are empowered. We, we can kind of embrace the alternatives. So yeah, not only a quiet 
peaceful place, but also a really happy one. Mm. I think that's it, isn't it? I think when we realise where we're sitting now in 2030, when we look back on that sort of hypermobility that we were so obsessed with mm. um, throughout the, the early decades of the 21st century, where it was always about better, further, faster, more. Uh, and, you know, the idea of mini breaks and jetting around that was facilitated by, you know, the artificially cheap accessibility of aviation. And, you know, I think that kind of that restlessness looks like the form of insanity that we had with the accumulation of the commute, which again, that pandemic of 10 years ago, completely spiked, where we suddenly had an intervention where we're looking around and going, hang on, why are millions of us, literally millions of us every day, going through these very, very strange rituals, which are a complete waste of time and money and stress and uh, and all the other sort of negative factors and requiring us to build massive amounts of hugely costly infrastructure only to create vast amounts of wasted time and I think when I sit here now I'm nearly 60 now what a horrible thought Um, (laughs) and you know I I I feel more grounded I don't feel that sort of uh, urge to twang myself around in an aluminium sausage that uh, we might have had sort of uh, 25 years ago. And I, I think back, you know, to my own sort of what feels like a veteran experience now of when I travel around the world without getting on a plane way back in 2007. Uh, and at the time, you know, people thought I was completely bonkers. You know, why on earth would you do that? And I think what we appreciate now, perhaps we didn't then, is that very old Zen notion of the journey being the reward, but also the appreciation for the absolute wondrousness of the blessings that we enjoy on these little sceptered isles in Northwestern Europe. Uh, And I've always been gobsmacked in the past where people seemed absolutely obsessed with wanting to, to go halfway around the world to see wonders that they've never appreciated in their own land. Mm. This incredible diversity of landscapes. I mean, you know, Britain is a perverse little place in the fact that it's so changeable from, you know, rugged mountains and and wild rocky sea coves to huge sandy beaches, gentle rolling hills and the flat badlands of Norfolk. And, you know, you speak to people who are desperate to go to New Zealand or were desperate to go to New Zealand in the past, and they'd never been to Scotland. You know, they'd never, they'd never got on the train to go 500 miles north. So I think that idea of hypermobility feels like a form of collective madness that we were suffering from in the past. And it's that joy of kith and kin, of, of being connected to place, of, of relishing the appreciation of knowing your land and all its, its wondrous and diverse uh, pleasures. And being able to, to feel connected to that uh, in a way which I think we always felt like we were trying to escape from it. If I wanted to get philosophical, I think we were just trying to escape from ourselves. That's a really good point, Ed. I think you're absolutely right. And all that rushing around that air travel encouraged us to do probably distracted us from the maybe dissatisfaction that we felt, perhaps. I don't, I don't know. Um, I can only speak for myself, but... 
being grounded means that you it's not just physically being on the ground it's being more grounded as a person and feeling more connection with yourself and your surroundings which is really important and wanting to be here wanting to be at home not always seeking the other and what does the other actually give you does it give you happiness well that's a that's a really good question and um yeah when I look back to my one and only long-haul flight which was way back in at the beginning it must have been 2001 now I went to New York for my 18th birthday with my sister and it was amazing because New York is an amazing city and we were obsessed with friends and you know we we practically ran around the city to kind of find all the haunts and the, uh, the scenes from our tv screens and we had lots of stories to tell our friends but actually in reality it was a very difficult trip I was desperately sick I threw up in the hotel lobby when we arrived <laughs> so it was it was very miserable just having to be on the flight and um, having the jet lag and everything else I mean the actual experience of being in New York was also quite difficult because there was so much to see. We're never going to see all of it. And it was very, very cold because it was January. So we had a little bit of a difficult time. And when I got home, I actually, that same year, I went to old York <laughs> with a boyfriend at the time and had just as good a time in that city because I was seeing a new place with someone I loved. And that's why we travel. Mm. Those are the things that make us happy. Those are the experiences that make us happy. And because that era of cheap flights encouraged us to zoom around the world to places because they're advertised to us and all the rest of it, um, and always made us feel like we should be somewhere. Otherwise, we're not going to find that happiness. We should be somewhere else. It made us forget that actually, what do we want from life? What is happiness? And Happiness is spending time with your family, having good food, having new experiences, discovering things about yourself, discovering things about place. And you can do all of that without getting on a plane. I love the idea that maybe one of the reasons why the aviation sector disappeared was because they hired Ed as their advertising consultant <laughs> and twang yourself around in an aluminium sausage became their <laughs> advertising slogan and it tanked from there on in. Um I'd love to hear from both of you your 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 stories about wh why you stopped flying. How did it come about? Can you describe that decision moment to us and how easy or, or difficult was it, Ed? Well, I, I have to make a slight confession, Bob. I, I, I never actually fully gave up flying entirely. I didn't fly on, on holiday for a period of uh, 13 years. And then I broke that duck by going to Antarctica, which was... Um, and I was offered a sort of chance of a lifetime trip. So I can't claim to be whiter than white, but... Whiter than the Antarctic snow. <laughs> yeah, well, I know, I know. And I'm, and I'm aware of the paradoxes here. But I think, you know, this is a this is a time, a reflective time of honesty and transparency. So I don't want to play myself as holier than thou. But for me, I, I mean, it really was creeping climate change realisation. You know, in the early noughties, I was working as a sustainability consultant, and I quickly became clear to me that it was the most hypocritical thing I could do because of the intensity of the carbon footprint, because of the points that Rob was making in the introduction, that it's such a tiny percentage of the world that actually participates in aviation. Then even worse, you know, the bigger problem is the binge flyers, you know, where the vast majority of flights are not taken by people taking their once a year holiday, 
they're taken by the people who fly multiple times a year, both for pleasure and for business. And so it was just that sort of binge flying realisation. And also that getting on a plane is the single biggest, most carbon intensive behaviour you can undertake. So I, I just had to sort of overcome my own cognitive dissonance and say, look, if you're advocating and pioneering and trying to be persuasive uh, to others about cutting your carbon footprint, then you, you know, you've got to walk the talk. And, you know, that's where my round the world trip without getting on a plane came from. And it was really also about celebrating the positives. It wasn't just about, you know, here's some hair shirt environmental practice that you can do and feel like it's a massive loss. The world's most miserable holiday. Yeah, the world's most miserable holiday. And, <laughs> you know, and there's two points, well, there's two points I really want to make around that. It's like, so for me, it was about the rediscovery of over, the joy of overland travel that, you know, very much we were the generation that had inherited the cheap flight opportunity. And yet our parents' generation and both my parents met working on cruise ships back in the day, you know, and that was the way that they traveled in those days because aviation was prohibitively expensive. And I wanted to get back to that romance of grounded travel, transition of landscape, culture, people, language, all of the wonderful immersion of traveling through places rather than just, you know, twanging over them in the aluminium sausage. You know, in, in, in that sense, aviation was the, the wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. You know, it was rather than, it's a quick knee trembler behind the bike sheds, rather than the slow seduction uh, of overland travel. God, we're getting the metaphors in here today, aren't we? Yeah. And also, but there's two things which are really crucial here. One is the conviviality of overland travel, particularly trains, you know, not least because often you have the seats facing each other. And so it's an icebreaker. It's a conversation starter. And whenever you've done long train journeys, they are always replete with anecdotes and stories from the people you meet, the amazing folk you meet. And my book, Only Planet, is full of them. It's basically a book about the people I met uh, along this amazing journey. So there's this extraordinary conviviality, which, you know, with the best will in the world, when you're sat in the rows on a plane, everyone facing the front, you just, you never got that. But also, it's the schadenfreude of what makes a great holiday story, because it's usually about cock-up, because no one wants to hear about your two weeks by the infinity pool sipping cocktails in the sun, because that's boring. But everyone wants to know when you nearly got arrested by Chinese border police <laughs> trying to get across the Mongolian border. Uh, and everyone wants to know how you nearly got arrested as a drug smuggler going into Japan, because... That's the grist to the mill that comes from these overland journeys. And so those two things, the conviviality and the cock-up, are so inherent in what makes travel memorable and what makes travel special uh, when you forsake the airport. So going back, it was like, for me, it was, a, it was a carbon type of provocation about walking my talk, but also about getting back to what makes travel really, really special. Thank you. Anna, how was that? What was your what was your giving up moment? Well, similar to Ed, as you can imagine, it was a carbon motivation. And I actually watched The Age of Stupid in 2009. And that was the film that made me think, OK, right, I really need to change things. I think many of us have that moment where we find out something new or we're exposed to a piece of media or whatever. And we think, OK, now now's the time. So I'd spent my whole life trying to really minimise my impact upon the planet things like my diet, my clothing, my home, my travel. But I took the occasional flight and didn't think twice about it. And then 
watching this film, The Age of Stupid, which if you haven't seen it, it's about a man who looks back from the future at what is dubbed The Age of Stupid, which is the 2010s, and asks the question, why didn't we save ourselves when we had the chance? And it's very powerful. And one of the pieces of advice after watching that film was, if you want to make a difference, one of the main things you should do is stop flying. And I thought, okay, that's it. Cancelled a couple of trips I had booked. And that was the end. And I haven't been on a plane since. Again, similar to Ed, while that was the prime motivation, once I then started exploring this new life of traveling on the ground, I just absolutely fell in love with it. And it's similar to some of the, to a lot of the stories, in fact, that we have through our Flight Free UK campaign, people telling us that even if you could fly carbon neutral, they wouldn't go back to it because not only in 2030 are there no planes anymore, <laughs> but because they enjoy this new way of traveling so much more. And I really, really have to agree there. So my big adventure was cycling around the coast of Britain. And I mean, not only did I not fly, I didn't even leave Britain. <laughs> um, you know, 4,000 miles around that coastline that Ed described earlier with all that incredible variety. I was so I became so obsessed with Britain after that. I then sailed around the coastline <laughs> as well. It's <laughs> like, I want to repeat that adventure, but from the outside, looking at it in the other way. And yeah, I became absolutely convinced that you do not need to get on a plane to have an adventure or have a genuine travel experience. And um, since then, I've spent quite a lot of my time sharing that story and telling people that to kind of look under their noses a bit more and, and see the, the gems that we, that we have here that we so easily overlook if the first port of call is that plane booking website. Mm. Yeah, one of the one of the gems that I discovered through traveling on trains, which I never would have found if I'd have been on planes, is I think is it is it Garda Lest or Garda one of one of the stations in Paris mm. that has this incredible restaurant called the Blue Le, Le Train Bleu with this amazing ceiling. It's just one of the most beautiful places. Yeah. So it's part of the problem here that for so many people a life without flying is just impossible to imagine. Even the Guardian, the newspaper that takes climate change most seriously, runs articles about the climate emergency alongside articles in its business pages, unquestioningly talking despondently about the economic performance of our airlines. Does our cultural schizophrenia about flying impact our ability to imagine life without it? Anna? Certainly it does. That's one of the reasons why with our campaign, we ask for people to take a year off flying rather than say you could never fly again. It's more just try it for a year. And a year is a challenge. If you're used to getting on a plane three times a year or more, that will be a challenge for you. But it's not undoable. I mean, we all know because of the pandemic, people have stayed grounded for a year or more. But it's that kickstart to that behavior change. So when you take some time away from something, the scales fall from your eyes. Because of course, everything in our 2020, 2021 society is pointing towards booking that flight when you want to go anywhere so it is the ease of booking it's the attractability of the price it is the fact that we don't know what the carbon cost is you know we're not told that when we book our ticket it is that you can google any destination in the world and the first thing that will come up is a flight booking website if you want to try and book a train it's way more difficult mainly because you have to book several trains if you're going far away and working out the connections is not necessarily helped by the platforms if you are uh, walking through town, the, the adverts for holidays will tend to feature the plane. So it's automatically how we think and we assume that we need to travel and get anywhere. 
once you have broken away from that, you sort of see things with new eyes, and and that's the idea. Ed, echoing Anna's points, I mean, I think it's always been about cost and convenience as well as that sort of cultural programming, because I think when I've spoken to people about my flight-free adventures. People usually say, oh, well, that's great, but it's too difficult, or, oh, that's great, but it's too expensive, or I don't have the time. I think all of those things are easily resolvable. And one of the businesses that I was involved in immediately after coming back from my flight-free adventure was Loco2, which is now uh, Rail Europe, which was an app which was designed to make it as easy to book a European train as a European plane. And that was our raison d'etre. You know, it was like, okay, as Anna said, you know, you're going to need to book multiple trains. If you want to go from London to Barcelona, it's going to take at least two or three legs. We made that into a one-click proposition. So people could instantly overcome some of that convenience challenge and make it simple. Uh, And there's another business which is evolving now called Byway, which is now offering exactly that same kind of package to people who want to do a flight-free journey. The cost has always been the other big one. And we know that's because a lot of the external costs of aviation are simply not internalised, not just the carbon emissions themselves, but there's no tax on aviation fuel. So if you like, the playing field is not level. So aviation gets a kind of cheap pass and we don't pay the real cost. Uh, And so it can feel artificially cheaper. But there's also a psychological element to that as well, because, you know, we see our supposed point to point Ryanair flight where they fly you to an airport, you know, vaguely near the destination. (laughs) Um, And, you know, you go, oh, it's great. I'm going over there. And it's like, well, you're not. You're going to a regional town, which is claiming to be that destination. Uh, And then you've got to include all of the kind of, you know, the connections. And the joy of trains is they tend to go from city centre to city centre. But we don't factor that in. So we look at the cheap flight and go, oh, that's so cheap. Um, <laughs> don't, and don't factor in, you know, the hours getting to the airport, the hours sat around in the airport before flying, you know, the, uh, the other hours to the destination, the other end from the airport. Whereas on the train, you know, you're just, you sit back as the man in seat 61, the legendary man in seat 61, Mark Smith, always said, you know, never travel without a corkscrew and a good book. And that, that, for me, was also about the conviviality of that. It's like, it's, you know, it's a nice wine and a good read. And this incredible rolling panorama of beautiful views going past the window. So civilised, Ed. Exactly. But it's incredibly important. I mean, one of my sort of gurus at the Forward Institute, Margaret Heffernan, always says, you know, when you're travelling, she goes, spend 20 minutes of that journey just looking out the window switch off you know allow your sort of beta state to be hypnotized by that moving image outside the pain and allow your mind to wander and it's not the same from thirty thousand feet i mean the cloudscapes can look glorious you know you can get incredible views but it's such a a disconnected alien perspective Mm. from such a vast height there's no intimacy whereas on a train one of the things i've noticed you know, as a committed environmentalist changing over the years is is the number of solar panels you see. You know where there's a revolution underway when you're going around the UK on the train and you're gazing out the window and going, my God, there is a lot of solar now. <laughs> and I can remember when there was virtually none. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and I love that. I love that connectivity. I love that uh, idea of transition through the place and the observation and but hopefully not like 
the guy who got caught having sex with a goat in a Newcastle allotment uh, by somebody on a passing train. <laughs> what? That's a true story. It's a true story. Oh my uh, god! Yeah, I mean, best... I, I was just going to say, a flight is something to be endured. And yeah. A train journey is something to be enjoyed. Although I don't think I would enjoy that train journey if that's what I had to see. No, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think that would definitely put a down on it. Um, uh, if someone is listening to this and is wavering and is having a moment akin, Anna, to your age of stupid moments, mine was um, an inconvenient truth sitting in the back of the cinema with those credits coming up of all the ice glaciers all caving in on themselves and thinking, right, I need to do something. And it's wondering whether this should be a change they're going to make in their own lives and maybe even whether today listening to this podcast might be the moment when they think right i'm going to give it a go for a year at least what else might you add to convince them you've, you've given lots of really strong arguments are there any other of your key strong arguments uh, for not flying that, that, that you'd like to bring in i think there are so many aspects to this so yes it is mostly about the environmental impact of that form of travel so for, the, for anybody who cares about the size of their carbon footprint really, really needs to address flying. Because even if you are vegan because of reduction in emissions, even if you don't have a car, the savings that you've made from that can be wiped out by a single flight. So traveling to New York and back, my personal emissions from that journey were equal to if I'd driven my car every day for a year. And that is just quite an epic chunk of emissions just in one go, especially if you're trying to cut down your carbon footprint in other areas. Uh, yeah, I would say that. But I would also really uh, stress the kind of wider implications of this. It's not just about carbon emissions. It is also about air pollution. And it's also about the quality of life for people living under flight paths. And it's also about justice because uh, we know the injustices of climate change, right? It is the people who are least responsible for causing our climate woes who are suffering first and most, and they are suffering right now. It's up to us in the West with our high carbon, high consumption lifestyles to do something about it. So that is a, a massive issue of justice. But also within the UK, it's an issue of justice. There is no tax on aviation fuel, yet we all pay the price for the few people who fly. Um, and even here in the UK, it's only about 50% of people who would fly in any given year. But we all suffer. We all suffer the effects. In addition to that wonderful new life you can have when you travel by other means, it is also about justice and about equity and about levelling the playing field and about righting the wrongs that exist in our society. Amen. Ed? Well, I'd absolutely endorse what Anna's saying about fairness. I think, you know, that's uh, first and foremost. I I'd also slightly mischievously add a sort of slightly hedonistic element actually it's hard to be naughty on a plane you know because of all the security there's something where you can you know there's something very childlike about aviation where it is you know sit there strap in don't move you know watch the tv <laughs> get fed it's like being a baby um there's a sort of the infantilization of flight you do what you're told well you don't get that on a train and you know, you can walk up and down, you can go and talk to people, you know, if it's on a bigger train, there's a bar. I love that freedom. I think you get treated like an adult on a train and you get treated like a child on a plane. And I just think we should celebrate some of that. And I think that's where the real joys and, and pleasures come from. I mean, you know, as I say, I've had many adventures, but I mean, I, I will share one very quick one, which was going to 
uh, Stag Weekend in Barcelona about a decade or so ago. Uh, and the rest of the Stag Party flew. And I said, I'm not flying, but I'm going to come, but I'll take the train. And they all thought, okay, he's Ed bonkers. So I got on the train, Eurostar to Paris, then got on the sleeper train, made friends with a French Spanish guy who was in my sleeping compartment called Fred. He didn't speak much English. I didn't speak much Spanish, but we managed to speak sort of uh, broken French together. Ended up having a few drinks with him, then met three middle-aged English women who were all France-based with French husbands who were going on a ladies' weekend to Barcelona and had the most riotous night on the train. And of course, I rocked up in Barcelona the next morning, um, having felt like I had a stag night on on route uh, and then and then had to do another stag night the following night which was you know slightly to my regret but as i say that kind of stuff just doesn't happen on the plane i think i've i've got long-lasting friendships which have been forged by chance encounters on, on the rails and i've got the clincher as well when you travel by train you don't have to take your shoes off. That is true. <laughs> no, exactly. The security checks. It's I, I, funny. I was going. I was going onto a wedding in France with my kilt and my ski and do, uh, and I and I got on the Eurostar and the security check. My bag went through, and obviously the knife came up on the X-ray, uh, and I had to get my kilt out and unfold it. And the guy took one look at it. He went. Oh, ceremonial dagger. That's fine. <laughs> Hands all the time. That would not happen on EasyJet. No, exactly. It's like, try getting on a plane with a ski and do. <laughs> the only good thing I remember getting from flying one time was years and years ago, I went to America and one of my favourite words in English is discombobulated. I think it's the most fantastic word. And when you go through the bit where you take your shoes off and your belt and everything, the bit on the other side where you then put it all back together again and put your... It's called the its called the recombobulation zone. <laughs> I never knew that was a word. There's a big sign saying recombobulation zone. I'm like... Well, it was worth it just for, just for this moment, frankly. That's fantastic. Isn't that great? So the last thing I wanted to ask you then is, so if we are to truly leave flying behind as a folly of the early 21st century and move to a world with all of the benefits that uh, you've so beautifully painted here, how might we build a coalition of political support around that idea? Will people ever vote for what is perceived of as a restriction on their freedom? How do we, how do we get there, Ed? That, I mean, that's a really good point. And I think the fairness piece is the key to unlocking some of that, whether that is about levelling the playing field by having an aviation fuel tax, so actually starting to pay the real cost of flying so people could see actually the real cost comparisons between train and plane. But also I think there there is a great fairness argument to be made, which would certainly tackle what we might call the binge flying. You know, and lots of people have talked about the populism actually of a frequent flyer levy whereby, you know, for every flight you take, you pay an increased amount of aviation tax. And I think that's really fair because I think those people who never fly, and that's about half the UK population uh, in any one year, and those people who might take only one flight a year uh, or maybe only every other year, you know, they would see that as a, as a good thing because it is the problem, certainly in the UK, that 75% of flights are taken by 15% of us. And so, again, the vast majority of that airtime is hogged by a, a minority and all the impacts shared, as Anna articulated. And so I, I think you can make a good case for this, for the, for the majority of people, which is, you know, about 85% of us who very rarely fly or never fly, to say, actually, it's not about curtailing freedoms. It's about 
those people who are excessively exploiting this opportunity should have a strong financial disincentive to do so. Uh, and that's that's very egalitarian. Hmm. Thank you. Anna? So similarly on price, now I'm going to go even more radical because roughly speaking, a flight would be about six times more polluting than a train within the UK. Roughly speaking, it's 10 times more polluting when you get to the super green uh, European trains. So why don't we just let the price reflect the environmental cost? So the price of a flight from London to Manchester would be six times the cost of the train, not saying that that train should be £100, saying that the train should be way, way cheaper. So, yeah, you're paying 10 quid for your, for your train ticket, whereas you're paying 60 quid for the flight, right? Money talks, okay? How are we going to get people to actually choose the behaviours that we need to see? Hit them in the pocket. I mean, I would love it if, <laughs> if the train was £10 to Manchester from London. That'd be amazing. Perhaps we won't quite reach that, but if we get somewhere towards that equality... 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then I think we're getting somewhere. Um, when we're talking about domestic travel... I mean, I would just ban all domestic flights. I, you know, I on an island that's as small as the UK, there is no need for us to be flying within it. And all that domestic flights do is encourage us to live in Edinburgh and work in Newquay. And that's not actually what we should be doing either. So, um, you know, imagine all that commuter time that you could save and imagine all that stress that you could save if you actually worked in a place that was near where you lived. So, yeah. And what we could do instead is rewild the uh, the airports. So, you know, let's take that extra step uh, beyond just stopping the domestic flights, but we're actually going to do some rewilding projects because cutting our emissions at this stage is not quite enough. We need to go beyond that and actually create a future which will make up for the fact that we have been massively overburdening the atmosphere with carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases for too long now. So yeah, let's go radically in the opposite direction. Wonderful. Great. That's after we've done all the golf courses, uh, I presume. So <laughs> thank you both so, so, so much for joining me. This has been great. And hopefully today there will be many people listening to this for whom this will be the first the first day of the second half of their lives and they will be taking a step on this great adventure that you've so beautifully painted. So thank you both so much for joining me here today. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for listening and for ideally for subscribing and to Ben Adicott for all the stuff that makes this podcast sound so damn good. See you next time.